You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. Karuchak, your host for this week. As you know, I alternate weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Schurz, and I have as special guest once again, Dr. Lee Gross, our fearless, peerless leader, president of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Uh, Lee, it seems like uh, these days uh, we're kind of drinking from a fire hose in terms of the rapidity of events and uh, all of the really, really good stuff that's happening, and I'm delighted that, uh, that you're the one that's at the center of it all it couldn't be a better person to do it but you got to be uh you got to be almost dizzy from it all i would think yeah no, it's it, it's it's fantastic and thanks for having me back on i i tried to get on uh, to the show so many times but you've been so busy uh uh, doing a show that I had to end up doing, uh, falling back and doing the Hannity show because I couldn't get on with, with a doctor's lounge. So oh, well, you know. The doctor's lounge. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, be back. we only we only pick from the people that have been on Hannity already. You know, we've become very okay. selective over the last few months because of this demand has been so great. Even, you know, I'm not even sure I want to return Sean's phone call. So, you know, I'm still trying to decide. So, yeah, you know, you know, we're kind of busy. That's true. But uh, anyhow, kidding aside, man, it's been a whirlwind, hasn't it? It has been. There's lots of uh, exciting stuff, interesting changes. So I'm happy to sort of explore some of the things that are going on. Now, let's uh, let's uh, start off. We, we talked about this ahead of time to try to, to choreograph the show a little bit. So first uh, item on the agenda is... The, uh, the White House Choice and Competition Report, uh, released earlier this week, uh, is a very important document that sort of outlines either a to-do list or a wish list, depending on what the future holds, but a lot of neat stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a little background information is October of 2017, President Trump issued an executive order. And in his executive order, it was a, it was a choice in competition. He wanted to promote anything that would improve competition, increase choice, and decrease cost and increase quality for the U.S. healthcare system. And so that, that executive order had a series of, of uh, parts to it. The first part was uh, expand access to short-term limited duration insurance plans, which we, you and I have talked about before. Indeed. Uh, it, it was to uh, expand or modify the association health plan rules, which allow uh, small groups to consolidate together and act as a large group to purchase health insurance together as a large group and also uh, to purchase those policies across state lines. Uh, that was a huge initiative that also was recently uh, released uh, which everyone is, is pretty excited about. But one of the one of the things that was in that report was basically a call to the departments within the United States government to do an internal assessment of everything that is inhibiting choice and competition uh, in in healthcare. And so this was a uh, a call to action from you know the Department of Treasury, the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, Health and Human Services, and so these departments basically all got together and, and, and evaluated where is the healthcare system broken? What are areas where we can, where we can make some changes? What is keeping the cost high? Uh, where are areas where we can break down at the federal level, at the state level? Are there certain regulatory changes that can be made? Are there certain legislation that needs to be passed? What needs to grease the wheels in order to get this system functioning like a true uh, market economy? 
And so these organizations, again, did, did this, you know, top-to-bottom analysis, and then they convened a group of uh, multiple listening sessions where they invited people that are experts in certain sectors uh, and uh, to the White House to have roundtable discussions on these to sort of vet out some of these things. And uh, I was included in one of those roundtable discussions, just as you and, and Dr. Dr. Howell were, were in those. Um, and so this was finally, after a year, just unveiled uh, just this week. So uh, maybe you tell us a little bit about your your invite to the White House and your listening session, and what you know what was that like when you were uh, involved with with the White House staff. It was it was a. Uh... I mean, as a newbie at it, the whole thing, I, you know, I, I felt almost like a gawking tourist because it was a, a little piece of the universe I had never seen before. But uh, it was held in the Eisenhower office complex, uh, which was a very big building with a very small number of people in it. And uh, the, it was five people interviewing 15 of us. Uh, Hal and I were the only physicians in the group. Uh, but there were some heavy hitters, uh, you know, executive branch liaisons from the AMA and MGMA and organizations of similar um, size and uh, magnitude. Um, and it was it was an interesting sort of uh, one hour chat. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to interested in, in developing uh, concepts and, and exploring the policy. Right. Oh, correct. Yeah. I, I got the sense, uh, you know, especially after, you know, as you and I have both done together, gone to Washington and, and talked to many people over many visits over many years, um, you know, and we've seen these meetings sort of look good and then fade. But I, I got the sense that the interest was genuine. Um, the conversations were meaningful. And yes, I, I got the sense that they they were listening. Yeah. So I, I got the, the same exact sense. Now, our, our room was, was a little bit more full than, than yours. But uh, again, I, I, these, these people definitely did their homework. This, you know, these were clearly, clearly experts, uh, uh, bringing in experts to talk about this. So the document was just released. It is the you know the White House's choice and competition report to uh, to uh, again improve uh, quality, reduce the the cost of healthcare, and it it is an exceptional document. You know, it's looking to, to to see what's wrong with the system and how they can fix it. Uh, there are some phenomenal ideas to be done at the state level, at the federal level. I think there are some regulatory changes in there that are pretty excited. So. Uh, happy to say that direct primary care is included in this in this uh, hundred almost 120 page document. Uh, they did talk about the direct primary care. They talked about the health savings account issues surrounding direct primary care, which we will talk about a little bit later. Uh, they talk about certificate of need and repealing certificate of need laws. They address issues around physician owned hospitals and and overturning the ban in physician owned hospitals. Um, you know, but there's some things in there that I don't necessarily agree with, you know, like the scope of practice expansion for mid-levels and, and some uh, modifications in foreign trained doctors. But, you know, no document like that is going to get, you know, 100% buy-in from anybody. Correct. So, uh, you know, there's some stuff in there that I think is fantastic. There's stuff from the foreman. And, and so pretty excited to, you know, have the opportunity to really go through that and, and vet it out. 
Uh, I was impressed with some of the language um, that was in it, and, I, and as you were talking about certificate of need, I remember reading some passages that I was I was impressed with the with the clarity of the language. Uh, instead of watering it down and saying, you know, it may not be good, it requires further study, that they they did have the guts to say, for example, certificate of need is hurting healthcare, it's hurting price, it's hurting competition, and it needs to go away. And I was impressed with the with the clarity of the language on on several of those points. Yep, I, I, I agree. And I think it's important for all of us to, to read through that document, uh, to you know, explore it out, to vet the policies, and, and pursue areas where changes either locally or promote them, uh, talk about them, write about them, uh, to get the American public really to understand what, you know, you know, what it's going to take to get this health care system moving and back on the rails again. I was impressed with the uh, with the language on health IT too. Again, they came out and said a lot of things about current EMRs are billing machines, not care you know not care tools. Uh, and and uh, I was I was pleased with with the things that were were said about uh, health information technology as well. But yeah, I think it's in the plans for us uh, as well to talk about this more on the air, to write about it. Uh, and I, I think it's a good thing. I think the folks that, that are at our level need to take the baton and, and run with it. Yeah, and if you, want to, if you want to find the document, you can go to hhs.gov, Health and Human Services website, hhs.gov, uh, and it is on the website there. So you can see uh, that entire document, download it, and, and explore it. I think if memory serves, Lee, you also posted it on your LinkedIn account, too, if, if memory serves, because I think that's how I found it. Yeah, and I'm I, I'm certain it was. I, I'm certain I t- uh, sent it out on my Twitter feed. There's no question about that. Yes, so it is definitely out there, and, and uh, we'll probably put that up on the Docs for Patient Care Foundation uh, website as well. It's it'll be featured on there as well. Good so deal. we also had some time in the Senate. Uh, hopefully, we have some a little bit of time to talk about that. Yes, you know, it all kind of dovetails together. Again, it's this drinking from a fire hose thing because as if. You know, the, uh, the participation in creating the report and then the release of the report isn't enough. Um, you kind of made a little trip to Washington for a little thing called testifying before the Senate. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so as you uh, had heard before, or as you recall, I was set to schedule, or scheduled to testify before the uh, U.S. Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. That's uh, Chairman Senator Lamar Alexander of uh, Tennessee's committee. And we, that was postponed because of the Kavanaugh hearing. We were, we were set to go at the same day, same time, same building. Uh, so this was a reboot of that. And uh, I was one of four national witnesses that was called to testify. And this was the, the fifth part uh, of a series of hearings on health care costs. So the, the nice thing is, is that they're, they're shifting a little bit the conversation from health care coverage to how are we actually going to reduce the cost of health care. Uh, so an important conversation, and the, the topic of this particular hearing was private sector innovation to reduce healthcare costs. So they wanted examples of what people are doing out in the real world that are actually working, and so they invited me to testify on direct primary care and specifically our work with Epiphany Health down in Southwest Florida as to what our experiences have been. Um, so I was excited to explore and testify for them, um, and uh, kind of share the whole process of it. Uh, the meeting was was pretty well well attended by the senators, uh, probably more than fifty percent fifty percent attendance. But you know this was the first national health care official hearing 
since the midterm elections when healthcare was polling, you know, at 80 percent uh, as you know one of the top concerns of, of voters as they were going to the polls. So I guess I would say I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get a little better attendance uh, from from the uh, from the senators on this hearing, considering the importance of healthcare and considering how many of them were so vocal on on you know the vast changes they needed to to not attend a hearing where people were actually coming and presenting working examples, I think was a little disappointing. But uh, the people that were there were very active, very engaged, asked exceptional questions. So how just, you know, sort of man on the street kind of question here. I mean, what is it that when, when you get an invitation to do this, how, what does it take to prepare as a witness um, besides, you know, going, you know, preparing your, your pre prepared testimony and then preparing for questions. I mean, do you have, I mean, is it typical to have media people train you? Is it typical to go through uh, some mock questioning? I mean, what, what do people generally do to prepare for something like this? Well, first I would say that this was a bipartisan hearing, so it was not really a gotcha hearing that you're really going to sort of get stumped by somebody or, or, you know, they're not trying to trip you up. So, so this was a friendly hearing. Um, so really not much cause to, to be prepared for, for a hostile environment. Um, so it's not like you're you know going on a witness stand and really expecting to be grilled. Um, in that setting, I think I you know certainly would have wanted you know, exactly what you just said was a sort of a media session you know to sort of be peppered with, with questions. Um, but you know the way this works is you have one round of, of interviews with the Republican uh, staff. Uh, and they ask many questions, and then if you pass that round, then you uh, meet with uh, um, another round of, of Republican uh, senators. Lee, I'm going, we're, we're 30 seconds past. I'm going to cut you off. We'll go to the next segment. You're listening to Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week with special guest Dr. Lee Gross, our fearless, peerless president of Docs for Patient Care Foundation. I was just in the middle of, uh, of, inter- of asking him my own questions, and, and we were talking about how one generally prepares for um, a, a hearing like this. And fortunately, it wasn't uh, a hostile environment. But uh, whatever you did, you must have prepared well because it sounds like uh, uh, direct primary care stole the show. 
Yeah, so we had witnesses from from HCA, the uh, the, the chief medical officer of the entire uh, healthcare corporation or hospital corporation of America, the second largest hospital chain in the country. Um, there was the representative or the administrator for uh, King County and in the state of Washington, uh, and then there was a. a, a Administrator for a, a national co-op based out of uh, Wisconsin, uh, Cheryl Demars, and she put on a, a really great presentation as well. But um, you know, I was the only practicing physician uh, on the on the panel, so you know, I made sure that I wore my white coat proudly to say, "Hey, there there may be two doctors on this panel, but one person sees patients," uh, and you know, made it obvious for everyone. But uh, we had five minutes each to make our presentation, so you travel across the country for five minutes, and you know, you. You get five minutes in that spotlight, and either you make a, a statement or you don't. And apparently, they they liked what they heard because they uh, definitely engaged with me in the question and answer session. So each senator had five minutes for Q and A. After that, much of their five minutes was usually uh, used in in a sort of a, a statement, or I don't want to say grandstanding because really nobody grandstanded as I as I thought they might in this one. They really sort of gave speeches and then uh, sort of followed up with a question. And you didn't have a whole lot of time to answer it. But the most important question was by Chairman Alexander that basically said, you know, Dr. Gross, this sounds fantastic. I uh, love what you're doing. This sounds like an amazing way to get access. I would like you to submit me a list in writing of all the things that the federal government can do to improve uh, and expand direct primary care. So, um, and that just sort of teed up uh, Senator Bill uh, Cassidy from Louisiana, physician, a uh, big supporter of direct primary care who basically walked in and said, well, now that you said that, Senator Alexander, I just happen to have a bill that will help fix the direct primary care health savings account legislative issue, and now I know you're going to co-sponsor it. Uh, and Outstanding. So, yeah, that was that was a, a, a big win for us. I mean, you know, one of the issues that we've had all along with the health savings account direct primary care legislation is we could never get the Congressional Budget Office to score the thing. And if you can't get the CBO to score it, then you can't get attached to any pieces of legislation. You can't get included into the budget if you don't have a, a, a cost score. Well, one of the first things that's happening as a result of this hearing is CBO is going to score the bill. Um, you know, so that's many years in the making of CBO refusing to score it. Now, just you know, five minutes of testimony, now the CBO is going to score the bill. You talk uh, about so the one is, that the House already passed that has that $100, $300 limit on it? No, this was the original one. This is this oh. is actually better than that. This oh, is a, okay. This is a really good. This is a really good bill without the caps, without all the the baggage attached to it. It was a well written bill that fixes the problems. Uh, it's the Primary Care Enhancement Act. Uh, now we'll see what they do with it behind the scenes, right? To, uh, to play with the CBO score to get it where they want. But you're still talking about a two billion dollar price tag on this, you know, on this uh, this HSA bill. Um, so they're going to have to finagle it a little bit, I think, because you know the Republicans insist on, on doing the, the pay for, which means if they're going to put a two billion dollar thing in the budget, they're going to take two billion dollars from somewhere else. Well, my impression is they can't, and I don't understand this well, so correct me if I'm wrong. But that's that's the reason that the 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 substitute bill, the one that was actually in committee and that the House passed, had the caps on how much you could deduct because that's the only way the CBO can score it. Right. But, you know, yes, that is, that is why those things were in there. That was why the undesirable uh, clauses in there that, that narrowly define primary care into such a, uh, such a narrow uh, 
lane that almost it, it carves primary care out from primary care. Yes, uh, that is not it, that is not in this bill, but that was to play with the scoring of the bill at the time. That was the JCT, the Joint Committee on Taxation, that scored that bill. Um, but yes, those you know those those clauses are in place now. There are other ways you can do it, you know, where you don't put the cap on your wages. You can put the cap on the deductibility uh, and accomplish the same, you know, the same thing. Yeah, I would think you just actually, put caps on how much you can deduct. That, that not a cap on the actual price, just how much you can deduct from it. So anything above that is not pre-tax dollars, I would think. Right. So it's not for us, you know, for us to really debate how CBO scores things because you know you can sit there and debate whether it was a the score was accurate or whether their assumptions they made were were appropriate, but at the end of the day, they have to work with the scores they're given. Uh, and we're not really going to debate the data uh, behind it effectively, especially with only a few weeks left in the legislative session. So hopefully we can get ourselves attached to this budget. You know, Congress has one job left and one job only. Their only job is to pass the federal budget, and then they're done. So anything else that gets done in the interim or before that passes is, you know, just gravy, but... Uh, you know, if we can get something going, if we can get in, included into that budget, you know, the nice thing that we have going right now is that, you know, the timing was perfect. This this uh, White House Choice and Competition report that that highlights the direct primary care HSA as a problem. We have the hearing that highlighted the direct primary care and HSA as a problem, and so now DPC becomes a a, a, a trading chip. It, it becomes something of value that we know, you know, the White House is, is put a high value on, that we know, um, you know, it's in, it's in play now. Uh, it wasn't in play probably a week ago. So uh, if it doesn't, if, you know, if it doesn't pass in, in the budget, then we restart over again um, in January with a divided Congress. I guess the good news is, is that, you know, last year the, 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 the resolution that came out of the House passed with a very large bipartisan uh, support. So my hope is that the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives will still like the bill, um, will still pass that. You know, we're still in a situation where we need something on health care. You know, people need relief. People need some help on health care. And this is just low-hanging fruit to get people access to affordable, high-quality health care. So what were the other things? Obviously, the, the, the bill that deals with HSA was one of the things that – you either are going to tell Senator Alexander or you've told him already or, or presented him with. Uh, was there any other uh, highlights on the wish list that he asked for? Sure. I specifically asked for to bring back major medical plans. Um, that's one of the things that people ask for is I just need a, a major catastrophic only high deductible health plan. And other than these short-term limited duration plans that, that President Trump expanded, there really aren't any major medical cheap plans left. Everything is a very clunky, expensive, you know, $700 a month, $7,000 deductible, you know, bloated plan. So, you know, cheap $100, you know, $10,000 deductible doesn't cover anything except, you know, cancer sort of stuff. Uh, we asked for that. Uh, I asked specifically for uh, eliminating the requirement for doctors to opt out of Medicare in order to enroll Medicare patients into a DPC plan. I think, you know, the Medicare opt-out requirement is one of the major rate-limiting steps I think even more so than the HSA issue. I think that's one of the biggest barriers affecting the growth of DPC practices. Doctors don't want to opt out. They want moonlighting opportunities. They want to be able to moonlight the ER or urgent care centers or, or you know, some side gig in order to make the ends meet while they're building up the DPC practice. Well, when you're opted out, nobody wants to hire you for that sort of stuff because you can't build Medicare in your side gig. 
Right. Well, you can't. I mean, there's no transitioning. I mean, it has to be a, a, a full cold turkey cutoff. True. Exactly. So I asked for that to go away, um, and I asked for them to address the issue in the states that can't dispense medications. Um, I think there are about seven states that still can't have physician dispense, direct dispensing of wholesale medications. So if they're looking for ways to get affordable access to medications directly to consumers, what better way than to walk out of the doctor's office with them in your hand without a retail markup? Absolutely. And so uh, I suggested they put incentives in place in order to convince those uh, those seven holdout states to allow physicians to directly dispense. So I submitted you know, five pages of, of asks to them. Uh, obviously, this year the big the big ask is the HSA DPC DPC bill, and hopefully we'll we'll see some action on some of those things. Well, that's uh, that's all fantastic news, and uh, it's just amazing that after you know all these years of uh, feeling like you know we were pounding on a brick wall, all of a sudden uh, you know there's a hole and the water's flowing through it, and and things are are starting to happen. So. Uh, so what's next on your to-do list? Do you think that they will uh, allow you to stay involved as the bill is drafted? I mean, I, I guess I live in fear of you know what happened to the the HSA bill that the House already passed earlier this year, where you know everything looks like it's fine until somebody cuts a deal in a smoke-filled room somewhere, and then all of a sudden the bill that's before the committee isn't the bill we thought was coming before the committee. I mean, is there any way to proactively reduce the risk of that? Well, I guess the, the first thing I would say is I'll dispense I'll, I'll some advice a, a, a lobbyist told me many, many years ago, which is nobody's ever safe while Congress is still in session. Uh, and I think that's probably true today is that that absolutely can happen. Uh, it definitely makes it easier now that we're connected directly to the people that have you know the power in drafting that. Uh, but there are absolutely competing interests at play there, and, and we shall see. But we're, we'll stay engaged. Uh, I am expecting another round of questions from the Senate Health Committee on February. I'm sorry, December 13th. That again, I'm going to have to respond to one more written round because the uh, technically the, the session is still open for the public record, and we're still able to exchange question and answers for another several days. And then what happens from there? I mean, what does it take to because because uh, Congress is only in session for what, another two weeks before the holiday, and then this Congress is, is done, right, or not? Yeah, basically, exactly. So, you know, a lot of horse trading going on behind the scene. Uh, you know, it could just be something that's tacked into the tacked into the budget. Uh, and, again, obviously it has to pass the House, but, you know, so the budget has to pass. Uh, so it, it would not be – this would not be passing the bill that already passed the House. That, that opportunity is, is probably gone. But this is the opportunity of getting something that's been vetted um, over many years included into that budget. So, again, we shall sort of see what, what happens during the sausage-making process of the budget. Uh, usually things will will sort of sit for a long time, and then everything happens uh, at the last possible second with, you know, just minutes to go. And we probably won't know if it's included or not included until we're just about to vote on it or until after it's voted on. So, so we got about I don't know thirty seconds left. Um, what else you want to tell the whole world about this before we break? Yeah, so so ask your senators to support the Primary Care Enhancement Act. Uh, you know, particularly I think you know, Senator Grassley is in charge of the, the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, Ron Wyden is the is the Democrat from Oregon is the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee. 
and they're the ones that decide really what gets put in, into that budget on the Senate side. Uh, and again, just you know, reaching out to your Congress, your Congress uh, people, and, and telling them to support direct primary care. You want access to affordable, affordable uh, care for as many people as possible, and this is clearly a way to do it. So we clearly want their support. All right. Well, Lee, I, I think somewhere underneath your buttoned-up shirt, you got a big ass tattooed on your chest because you're you're doing all this stuff, and it, it is awesome and fantastic. You are listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host this week at your service. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Who are we? Uh, We are a group of full-time practicing physicians that after we spend 10 or 12 hours every day taking care of patients, we come home and we study healthcare policy. We learn everything we can in addition to learning about how to take care of sick folks as much as we can. And then we bring all of that experience and all of that knowledge straight to you to bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. And we're proud. We're grateful. Uh, We are humbled to be entering our fifth year. We are now a month or two into the fifth year of the Doctor's Lounge. Uh, We hope you enjoy it. We're delighted to bring it to you. So today we have uh, an interesting subject to share. Now, you know in the Doctor's Lounge and the Doctor Patient Care Foundation, our, our signature issue, the one thing that we are pushing for the most in recent months is the direct primary care model. And if you've listened to the show, you understand what the direct primary care model is. This is a model in which you don't pay a fee to a physician or your insurance does not pay a fee to a physician every time that you see the doctor. In fact, for 80 to 90% of all your care, there is no insurance. You pay a monthly fee to your physician, and once you pay that fee, you get all the services you need. You get almost an unlimited number of, of visits, and you, in the perfect model, you also get... Uh, stitches if you need them. If it's not too complicated, you get your sprained ankle treated. Uh, if you get a nosebleed and need a nose packed or your nose cauterized, you get that handled. So all of these small things that a primary physician should be able to do to you are all rolled up into this fee. Now, why is this good? This is good because it gets the insurance company out of the equation for almost all of your care. All of the elective care, all the routine care is a straight economic free market model that allows doctors and patients to contract with each other directly for the provision of care. It allows downward pressures on prices, upward pressure on quality, and does everything that you need to make our health care less costly, more efficient, and the maintaining the highest quality that you could ever possibly want. And we've been talking about this for a long time. We, we are getting ready to host our third annual how-to meeting for direct primary care, which I believe, again, will be in Orlando in November. Uh, And that meeting is almost completely sold out. So if you're thinking about coming to that meeting again, you better hurry because we're down to the last 100 seats 
out of several hundred. So, uh, so get on that if you would like to come. It's a wonderful educational event, uh, even as a specialist, even as someone who's not going to be doing primary care because I'm not a primary care physician. I find these meetings fascinating uh, in uh, as much the people that you meet as well as the material that's reviewed. So we rely in this model on our independence from government, independence from regulations. Again, this is doctors and patients and nobody else, unless you have a God forbid type event, in which case your, your wraparound catastrophic only insurance policy would kick in. So our, our demands, our, our needs from government are minimal and can be summarized in one phrase. Stay out of the way. Don't meddle. Don't make it harder for doctors and patients to contract with each other. With a couple of very rare exceptions because of the extremely uh, heavy regulatory burden that's already in place. One of those exceptions has to do with a concept called health savings accounts. And you probably know what those are if you're a regular listener. The idea is that you put money aside, and I think you can set aside up to $6,500 a year or thereabouts, uh, pre-tax, and use that money to pay for Healthcare expenses, usually that's going to go towards your deductible as uh, health savings accounts are typically paired with a high deductible health plan. And so the idea is that you are able to pay your high deductible off should you need to uh, with pre-tax money. That's how it's supposed to work. Unfortunately, the IRS from the prior administration before Trump uh, ruled through a letter from the director of the IRS at the time, one – Mr. Koskinen, a name you may remember out of other contexts that we won't go into, had ruled that um, direct primary care plans were not, in fact, plans, but they were to be considered like gym memberships and whatnot. And therefore, you could not use health savings account money to pay for your direct primary care fees. That had to be after-tax money instead of pre-tax money. So that's a significant burden. And we have been lobbying – Uh, Dr. Gross, our our president, whom you will hear from later, has been lobbying to change that and allow uh, pre-tax HSA money to be used to pay your regular monthly fee to your direct primary care physician. And as you know from some of our uh, recent chats with Lee in recent weeks, that uh, there has been a great deal of success, at least in terms of getting the attention of the folks in Washington who actually have a fighting chance of fixing this. And as a result, uh, there has been a bill introduced that was was the proverbial one-page bill that basically said that HSA money, health savings account money, can be used to pay your regular monthly fee to your direct primary care physician. And we had high hopes that this was going to be introduced, it was going to get through committee, and go on to be passed by both houses and signed in the White House. Unfortunately, everything that government touches turns to something that we can't mention here on the radio. And Dr. Gross is going to get on the air here shortly and, and give us the details. I'm, I'm going to give you a little synopsis ahead of time to just give you a sort of a, 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 a cognitive map, if you will, a mental infrastructure to kind of hang what you hear from Dr. Gross. Um, what happened here is that there was basically a shell game pulled. Uh, in the House Ways and Means Committee last week, and, and literally hours before the committee was supposed to meet, the bill that we wanted was swapped for a bill that no one knew anything about. Uh, that was bill the, the the new bill that was introduced was HR sixty three seventeen, 
Uh, it was called the Primary Care Enhancement Act, I believe, or Direct Primary Care Enhancement Act, something like that. And it did say what we wanted. It did say that health savings account money could be used to pay your monthly fee to your direct primary care physician, but there were some catches. There were some caveats, and they're very difficult to find. I was not smart enough to find the problems myself. Uh, Dr. Lee Gross had to, to, to walk me through these, and uh, in a few minutes, he's going to walk you through these problems. But to summarize, you know, in order to uh, have your HSA money go towards your direct primary care physician, your, pri- your DPC doctor had to meet certain criteria. Uh, one of those was that the monthly fee was capped. Uh, for an individual, it's no more than 150 a month, and for a family or anything more than an individual, it's $300 per month. You say, well, that's not so bad. That's, uh, that number is actually significantly higher than the average fees that are being charged now, which is typically in the order of $75 to $100 for an individual, then maybe $150 to $200 for a family of four. And so you say, well, that's not a big deal all by itself, right? Well, wrong, because it starts a slippery slope. Uh, it interferes with free market. It, it interferes with uh, what may happen in the future where maybe some direct primary care practice wants a different pricing model that maybe costs more but covers more or, or something along those lines. Um, it's a bad precedent to set. It's a slippery slope. Uh, the other requirements are even worse. Um, the biggest problem is that the, uh, the, the direct primary care, in order to take your pre-tax HSA money, has to limit his services, his or her services, to – to, to simply see you, to simply talk to you, examine you, and discuss your treatment options. Uh, if you sprained your ankle and you need to have it set or you need to have ice put on it or you need to have it wrapped or do anything to it, um, that's outside of evaluation and management codes, and they're not allowed to do that unless they charge extra. Um, if you need stitches, they're not allowed to do that unless you charge extra. Uh, you know, all of this stuff, uh, and, and Dr. Gross will give you better examples than I'm giving you now, but the bottom line is it does two bad things. One is it limits the scope of service for your monthly fee, and the second thing it does is it now ties doctor services to the insurance codes called E&M codes, and that's a disaster because that that now shackles direct primary care back to the very coding system it was designed to escape. That's a problem. Anything else has to be charged by a line item. Also, they're not allowed to dispense drugs, which is insane because many, if not most, direct primary care practices do discounted uh, drug dispensing uh, as part of the services they offer. It's part of what you buy into. Now, that would be illegal for any practice that wants to accept your HSA funds, and there's implications for the patient as well. If a patient... Um, goes to a practice and uses a, a, a doctor that, that violates these regulations, they may not even be allowed to contribute to their HSA anymore. So it's really kind of an ugly problem. So with those introductory comments, I am going to queue up the interview with Dr. Gross. Um, I apologize in advance because the breaks for, for station breaks here uh, are in some odd places, so I'll apologize in advance uh, that this are going to be some production issues here and some places where the conversation gets interrupted at awkward points. So uh, you'll still be able to follow it. It's definitely worth it. Um, so let me bring up uh, my interview with, uh, with Lee here in just a minute. Hello again. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak hosting this week. So as promised, as we discussed earlier, I have on the line our fearless, peerless leader of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation president, Dr. Lee Gross, 
who is going to fill us in on the details on what is happening with this direct primary bill. Uh, Lee, again, thanks on short notice for being with us and filling us in right up to the minute. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks. Uh, good chatting with you, as always. So, so you know, as you go, go ahead, go, go ahead. You're ready to go. Now, at, you know, as you know, you know, Docs for Patient Care has always been a fierce supporter of direct primary care. Uh, and one of the limiting factors for direct primary care has always been uh, that you can't use a health savings account to pay for direct primary care. You can use a health savings account to pay for every medical service in the country except direct primary care. And so we've always pushed for solutions to this. We've had trips to Washington. We've met with White House. We've met with Treasury. We've met with, with everyone that will listen, uh, seeking ways. Uh, and there was a, a bill out there that's been around for several years now. This year, that bill was House, Resolu- House Resolution 365. Uh, and uh, this was uh, Senator Cassidy's bill. Um, I'm sorry. Senator Cassidy sp- obviously sponsored the, uh, the, the Senate bill. Um, but the, the House Bill 365 very simply in about two paragraphs resolved this problem. It had 35 uh, co-sponsors on the bill. It had bipartisan support. It had been vetted by many attorneys, uh, uh, lawmakers, and everyone agreed that this was a good bill. Uh, last Wednesday, uh, Ways and Means was scheduled to have a markup session uh, in the House on a whole host of HSA bills, uh, of which uh, this was one of the bills on the schedule to be marked up. Well, lo and behold, 24 hours before uh, this session started, a new bill suddenly emerged. Uh, which had no number at the time, and it basically was a complete strike-all and replace of the bill uh, that everyone supported, including us. Um, and this bill uh, was a... Coming up on the end of the segment, um, you are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. Obviously, we're bringing Lee back um, after the break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks for being with us. We are talking with uh, our fearless, peerless leader, Dr. Lee Gross. Uh, we're doing a little bit of odd editing here to make it uh, fit the segments, but I am going to bring um, the, uh, the interview with uh, Lee back on right now and pick it up where we left off. A convoluted HSA fix. Uh, which barely fixed one problem, but then in, it subsequently created about 10 to 12 other additional problems that were actually almost worse than the original problem that it solved. Uh, and we can get into to some of the details. So, uh, you know, you know, sort of in a in a you know frantic fury to find out more information, we we called uh, Senator Pol- uh, uh, I'm sorry, we called the uh, the Ways and Means Committee and, and try to talk with them about this bill to find out. Basically, it was. Now, pre-negotiated, the, the votes were already counted, and this was going to pass, and it's expected to leave the House uh, as is. Uh, and so we went from a, a simple, clean bill to a bill that was convoluted and, quite frankly, dangerous uh, in the bat of an eye. So 
last Wednesday it did in fact pass the House, and so. Um, it, it, you mean uh, out of the committee, or it passed the House? Yes, uh, it passed out of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, okay. and as as part of uh, a, a broad HSA overhaul, it's it's likely uh, going to be brought to the floor of the House uh, maybe in the next week before the August recess. So you know, this is this puts supporters of direct primary care in a very difficult position and gives us a very uh, difficult sort of communications, public relations messaging challenge because now we find ourselves being forced to oppose a bill which superficially on the surface to those who don't delve deep should be something we support. So how do we explain to the whole world why we oppose a bill which appears to do what we've always wanted? Right. So some of it is buried deep within the technical structure of the bill. And so if you just read the bill superficially, you you might think, actually, this doesn't sound so bad. Uh, And, of course, if you've ever read any legislative language, you can see lots of codes and numbers and and regulations that the the bill references. And, And most people usually just skim over those. Uh, but to understand what the bill really does, you actually have to track um, all those reference codes to find out what exactly they, they mean by these things. And so a couple things, first of all, stand out is that they wanted to they, they offered a very narrow definition of what direct primary care could be. Uh, and using those, they basically tied uh, DPC to CPT coding. Uh, and if you're not familiar with CPT coding, it's the AMA uh, licensed codes that they use to do all the billing for personal insurance. It's the one of the main reasons why DPC practices broke away and and stopped doing billing is because the coding was so complex. So it it tied the DPC practices to to medical codes, um, and it restricted it to, uh, specifically to your contracts only including office based services, um, and excluded anything that wasn't in there. So. For example, I could see you for your sore throat. That could be included in my DPC membership. But if I did a strep throat test, that couldn't be. That had to be excluded because that was not just an office visit. That became a procedure or a test. Uh, It would exclude the ability of including women's wellness exams, including pap tests. Uh, It would exclude doing urinalysis, blood glucose, spirometry, splinting, uh, sutures, all the stuff that, that most practices bundle into their membership agreements by this legislation would have to exclude out of their practices and line item them uh, and bill individually separately, uh, which means that these practices that have left the coding world now have to implement a, a, a system where they tr- whereby track these codes either real-time or retroactively uh, to avoid you know, future audits um, or not be eligible to use the HSAs within their practice. Taking that even... Uh, a step further in the problems of the bill is it it used the wrong IRS code to fix the bill uh, or to fix the HSA problem. So instead of uh, designating DPC as a qualifying medical expense to use HSA, it used the wrong code and it designated DPC as a qualifying health plan, um, which uh, you can still use your HSA under this bill, but it now sets up a conflict with the 25 states that have passed laws that said the DPC is not a health plan. 
Um, so the IRS says it's a health plan. The, the, the states say it's not a health plan. So you now have established new conflict between federal and state law. It, and historically, DPC practices have been able to uh, have their patients reimbursed for their memberships from flexible spending accounts or health reimbursement accounts through employers. Um, but now that you've designated this a health plan, it would disqualify them from using HSAs and HRA or FSAs flexible spending accounts and health reimbursement accounts to pay for this. So it fixes the HSA problems, creates two more problems, creates conflicts with states and federal law. Uh, it then goes on to do carve-outs for things that, that can't be done in the practice really at all. Uh, and they do a carve-out for prescription drugs. Now, if you know, you know, most of the independent DPC practices, which account for about 95% of the drug primary care in the country right now, and the independent practices, they do wholesale pharmacies in-house. So, you know, by this vague carve-out of prescription medications, it, it, it muddies the water on whether or not people can actually use their DPC practice to purchase medications, whether their HSA would, would be eligible for that, um, or whether they would be forced to get their prescriptions outside of the commercial pharmacy. Uh, so this this bill is absolutely uh, geared towards the the commercial drug primary care large corporate interests that really don't do a lot of these bundled services that 95% of the DPC practices out in the regular world do. So it is, you know, on the surface sounds harm, sounds good, but when you dive down into it, it's really a, a critically flawed bill. So the other problem, I guess, it sets up is is what it forces every DPC practice to do, which is either to keep doing what they're doing and not allow and not accept HSA money, or to accept and comply. So I guess it also introduces a bit of fragmentation potentially, does it not? Well, and it also creates an unlevel playing field between the, the independent DPC practices and the corporate practices because the corporate practices have the ability to comply where the independent practices don't, which is precisely the sort of problem that drove consolidation in the in the regular world, where the small practices couldn't keep up with the rules, and so they had to, to be bought up. Uh, and so it puts the small practices in, in, at a competitive disadvantage it taxes and penalizes the patients that see those smaller practices because they don't get the tax breaks that they're going to get had they gone to, to see a corporate practice that can comply with these new regulations. Well, uh, corporate practice not, can't, can't do any of these things either, right? I mean, does a, does a large really? corporate thing, can they somehow get around these requirements of not going beyond E&M somehow? Or? Well, they can put the, the software in place to track all of the CPT codes and and line item out every single charge uh, that a DPC practice would have Oh, okay. You're, just, you're talking about infrastructure and, and, and compliance the same way we do with everything else, not that they oh, can... Mike, I left, I, I left out the best part. Um, oh. They actually put a wage uh, cap on uh, direct primary care. So yes, they capped, indeed. Uh, how much you're allowed to charge for, for membership and how much of that w- would be uh, uh, eligible to use an HSA. So for the first time uh, in... in, uh, in recent history, you now have a federally uh, legislated cap on what the physician can uh, uh, can charge for their services, uh, which is an entirely slippery slope and almost sets up a, 
another SGR type situation where every year doctors are going to have to go back and beg from the federal government to you know not have their wages cut when they decide they're going to cut the caps uh, year after year again. So um, there's just little to like in this bill, and so you know the 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 HSA fix is, is quite frankly not worth what it's bundled with, and so you know it's really it, you know this is certainly a bill that that. Um, does not appear that that uh, the House is willing to budge much off the language on this. It's pretty much in stone. Um, I, I don't see many opportunities to really fix this when it goes to the Senate. Um, and quite frankly, uh, uh, this really needs massive, massive overhaul, or it needs to just go away. And and the sad thing is, is that does set back the HSA solution five to ten years. Uh, and this was a, a, a prime opportunity, and unfortunately, it was a prime opportunity squandered by, by poor bill, bill writing, special interests, um, and uh, it, it's a missed opportunity that we're really sad to see to see go. So, is it you, you think when something like this happens? Because I mean, you know, regular people don't really understand why this happens. Why, if you have one bill that everybody supported and it was recognized as a good thing, and then it gets meddled with. I mean, is this more a product of ignorance, forces of evil, uh, what? I think it's, you know, it's probably a combination of all of the above. It was a uh, an improper understanding of what independent direct primary care practices do. Um, it was... It, it was, you know, again, follow the money. If it doesn't make sense, follow the money. Yeah. Corporate interests, special interests, lobby, lobbies, uh, I think drove a lot of this. Uh, the desire to keep the cost of the legislation down, I think, drove much of this. Uh, the attempt to make this a bipartisan approach uh, when, you know, the Democrats uh, on this committee hate HSAs to begin with. Late work. Yeah, so, you know, I think that, you know, the the... Joint Committee on Taxation, which is basically the scoring body of, of the uh, Ways and Means Committee, um, really uh, put a very high price tag on, on this piece of legislation. Uh, as it is, they, they established a price tag of $1.8 billion, even with the scaled-down version over 10 years, uh, which is a figure that is just overly inflated, but um, there really is no negotiating on that. Um, I think, uh, you know, the... the Desire to keep the cost down, I think, drove a lot of these these tortured, you know, explanations and definitions of direct primary care, uh, which sort of, you know, put some of the very tight uh, and narrow definitions on DPC. You know, again, mainly to keep the, the cost down. Uh, you see the uh, the outside special interests, the corporate direct primary care uh, lobby. I think uh, heavily influenced the, the the development of this this legislation. Um, and again, I think you know when when all else fails, if, if you know if this doesn't make sense, you know who does well off of a legislation like this when when most of the DPC out there does not. Um, but again, it's a it's a few small uh, special interest groups. So to understand that, you, you probably need to understand you know what is the difference between the, the types of DPC. You know, ninety five percent of the direct primary care practices out there are small, one discrete. Uh, physician practices um, that that uh, you know contract directly with their patients. Uh, about five percent of the direct primary care are uh, large companies that contract through brokers 
uh, with contracting. Okay, that's about as much time we have here at the end of the segment. Uh, you're listening to the Doctors' Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.